0: Good morning, it's good to be back with you after being gone this past week, and we are starting the book of Romans, so I'm encouraged, excited to start this with you. If you would turn to Romans chapter 1 and be ready there, as we think about this book moving out of what's been quite a while in the Old Testament. The reformer Martin Luther once said that the book of Romans ignited his soul and he thought, triggered the Reformation. And in his preface to his commentary on Romans, he wrote this. He says, This epistle represents the fundamental teachings of the New Testament and is the very purest gospel, well worth not only to be memorized word for word, yes, all 16 chapters, but also to be used by every Christian as the daily bread of his soul. For no one could ever exhaust this epistle by study and meditation. The better one becomes acquainted with it, the higher one will treasure it, and all the more delight in it. Well, there you go. That's a lofty recommendation. I can just stop. You guys can read. But let's turn, though, to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Would you stand as we recognize that this is the Lord's holy and authoritative word, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greatness of your word, the magnificence of these thoughts and principles that jump off the page at us as we read them. Thank you, Lord, that they're so relevant today, even thousands of years later after they were first written. And thank you, Lord, that there is a story that is brought out in this book of Romans, a story that began all the way at the beginning, in which you are a faithful, covenanting, fatherly God who loves his people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in Philippians 3... 4 through 6, Paul writes of himself these words Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, that's how Paul's background read. What a resume, right? And he at one time felt God was getting a good deal with him. After all, he devoted his entire life to studying God's Word, to sitting under the most learned of of the rabbis, to pursuing and punishing the Christ followers whom he believed were not devoted to the law like he was. He had been sure of what he believed, passionately committed to eliminating these heretics. And it was only when Paul saw Jesus face-to-face on the road to Damascus that his eyes were opened to see that the one whom he had imagined to be, this uninspired, in fact, demon-inspired false teacher, was, in fact, the Son of God. And when Paul's view of God changed by that encounter with Jesus his view of himself also changed. So he's not here saying, in, for example, in that Philippians passage, look at how great I am. He's saying, this is what I once thought of myself. This is what I thought I had to boast about. But encountering Christ had this fundamental change in his life that he went from being the proud Saul to being the humble Paul, a slave of Christ and the gospel freed him from that self-confidence, it freed him from prejudice and pride of race and nation and tribe and class. It's one of the reasons that Paul starts this book of Romans with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, saying servant, that's, that's what we have in the ESV translation there, but in the Greek text, the word is doulos, which is usually translated slave. It probably is a better translation in this particular case because Paul is considering himself a slave. And yet in his letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of the liberty of the Christian. So how can you be both a slave and be free at the same time? Well, Paul had learned an important lesson that you need to know this morning. You can only be truly free... When you become a slave to Christ, and that might not make sense, so I'll try to explain. The Bible constantly reminds us that we have only two options before us. We either serve ourselves, this world, the devil, money, put, put whatever idol there in that blank, or we serve God. We are never truly our own boss. Never truly the captains of our fate, as a famous poem says. We are always people under authority. And the question is simply, whose authority? Whose authority will it be? Whom will you serve? It's what Jesus asks, right? Tells his disciples, you cannot serve both God and these other idols. The world, the money, etc. Joshua said the same when he challenged the Israelites. Choose this day whom you will serve. What will it be? The pagan gods of Canaan? Or the God of Israel. And the same is true of you. You will either serve the world, your flesh, devil, you will serve God. And here's where the liberty comes in. Jesus said that the yoke of those other masters, the yoke of your idols, is heavy. It is so heavy that it drags you to your death. Whereas the yoke that Jesus gives is light in comparison. It is easy, that burden. There's a yoke in either circumstance. And that's probably difficult for some of you younger people to fully grasp because you are so anxious to come out from under your parents' authority. So looking forward to making your own decisions. And it's difficult for some of you older people too, especially those of you who are employers or influential people who make the decisions for other people and and don't seem to have any bosses. But the reality is still that you also will always be under authority. And you will always wear a yoke. Serving Christ, though, leads to liberty from death. You see, when we talk about liberty or freedom, we have to ask the question, freedom from what? Freedom to what? And too many people think that free means freedom. From all responsibility and the liberty to do whatever we want, but is that truly freedom? Does free mean the liberty to disregard God's word? To disobey his commands? I hope most of you would say no. In fact, if you want to know the Christian's true liberty, it is the freedom from enslavement to the flesh, it is freedom from the eternal consequence of sin. It is freedom to pursue that which will actually bring you true joy. It is freedom of your mind and heart to dwell on good things and actually learn self-control. That's a freedom. That's the Christian's true liberty, and it only comes from being a slave of Christ. That's the great irony of the Christian faith. There's no other way. And so we are all servants, we're all slaves. But the next thing Paul says is not true of all of us. He says he was also called to be an apostle. And that's a unique calling. By New Testament definition, the apostles were men who had seen the resurrected Lord and been sent out by him to speak with his authority. They had the same role as the Old Testament prophets in many ways. That Paul was both slave and apostle Reveals a pretty amazing contrast, doesn't it? Slave, a great humility, a man without rights per se of his own because he is bearing the authority and leadership accountability to Jesus Christ, having been purchased by him, belonging to him. But apostle, on the other hand, is a title of great authority. It expresses his privilege and dignity that came from being called and sent by Jesus Christ. So he's a slave, he's an apostle. And third, he was set apart for the gospel of God. Not only was Paul set apart for this gospel, but look at verses 14 to 16, and you'll see the strong words he says about his being called to this ministry. In verse 14 he says, I'm under obligation, meaning I must give the people the gospel. Verse 15, I am eager. Dave mentioned that term earlier, eagerness. Eagerness. I am eager, which turns this obligation into a privilege, right? Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why such strong things? It's almost as if Paul thinks he's about to step into battle. On the one hand, he's preparing himself. He's saying, I'm eager. I have this great burden, this great debt, obligation. And yet, he's preparing himself And he says this, I am not ashamed. You don't say I'm not ashamed of something unless whatever you're about to do is potentially controversial and you're going to face opposition by people who would want to shame you or think that you were wrong, right? And so we ask, what what does this battle look like? Well, Paul describes it a little bit in Galatians 5.11 when he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In this case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And and so what he means is he's saying, if I preach what my audience wants me to hear, or wants to hear, I would not be persecuted. Same thing with you. Same thing with me. I'd please my audience. And we face a temptation, don't we? How many of you have been in a conversation with a stranger or perhaps a friend or a neighbor or an extended relative? You have the opportunity to say something about Christ to turn the conversation, to talk about following Jesus, to share that you believe in God, but you begin to get nervous, never get around to saying anything? Would you describe yourself as eager in that moment to share the controversial truth, or is the better description that you are self-conscious, that you're embarrassed, nervous, scared, self-protective? Any number of things. Well, Paul says in Galatians 5 that the gospel, which is the message about our sin and the solution for our sin, which was the cross, is an offense to the unbeliever. You know that. It's what makes you embarrassed. It's what makes you self-conscious. You know that to say that the person that you're talking to is so confident about the way that they're walking and their life is wrong... More than that that they are under the condemnation of God, more than that that they are on the path to destruction will bring persecution. So if I just preach what they want to hear, go, guess what? The persecution is removed. Nobody's upset. But he says, if I stop talking about the cross, everyone will be happy, but that won't be the solution, right? And the fact is, the gospel is an offense today. And too many people are ashamed of it. It's why so many churches work to market themselves, make themselves look attractive. It's why the focus is often upon you and me rather than Christ. All that's happening on the church level is what happens every day on the individual level. It's the same thing. Individuals, churches, we're all too easily ashamed of the gospel. Well, the good news may be good, it is, but it is good news because it solves the bad news. The corruption and depravity of man, the helplessness of man to save himself, his utter dependency upon God, the fact that he, we all have to wear a yoke, that is not a popular message. It, but it's what makes the gospel offensive. Nobody wants to hear that they are slaves to sin, that they have to repent, that they'll have to give up things that have become lifelong habits, that all along they have been accountable to the king and creator of the universe, that they really aren't their own masters. And if we as a church truly want to see lives changed, we will preach the good news and the bad news. And if we in any way water down that message, if we remove the cross and try to make the gospel seem reasonable and useful, we will strip it of the very power to raise men from the yoke of death and the slavery that sin brings. So a good question is, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? The important message of the fall of man Life, death, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's not what people want to hear. They want to hear about raising children, investing money wisely, becoming successful in their careers. They don't want to hear about the need for a Savior, but you have to be willing to share. See, the Romans prided themselves on their power, just like Americans do today. They had military might that could conquer the nations that stood in their path. They had a tremendous program of road building. They had the greatest lawmakers in history. They had the ability to write great literature, create beautiful arts. They were the philosophers of that time. Everyone hoped to visit Rome at least once in their lifetime to enjoy the beauty and wonder of a magnificent city. All roads lead to what? Rome. But guess What? The message of the gospel was as foolish to the Romans in Paul's time as it is to Americans in our time. We're not in a different situation. When you hear Paul's words, hear Romans, he is speaking to you as well. The message is the power of salvation. As Paul will later say in Romans 10 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we must speak the word of God. Look at verses 17 to 18 in Romans 1 and see something that is so important. For in it, having just talked about the gospel, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'll talk more about that to some extent next week. But notice very carefully what they're contrasting. On the one hand, there's the righteousness of God. And on the other hand, there is the unrighteousness of men. And the true gospel reveals that contrast. So here's here's another aspect of what I've just been talking about. The true gospel reveals the wrath of God. God will punish sinners. So it's not just talking about sin as an abstract concept that really isn't connected to the person that you're talking to and then getting immediately to the good news. But, God, but Christ died on the cross. It's also about the fact that there is a righteous, holy, pure God who is a consuming fire. He is wrathful against sin. There is a judgment that will lead to the unrighteous from the righteous unrighteousness of men and the trampling of his laws to ultimately hell. And only the righteousness given by Christ through his atonement on the cross will shield men from this judgment. It's not like we're just saying to people, here's here's a great option. We're saying here's not only the only option, but it is the life-saving option, the one that has eternal consequence. In the very next chapter, in verse 16, Paul says that on that final day, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And you have to understand what Paul is saying. He's saying, well, my gospel, that good news does include judging of the secrets of men of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus made this very clear statement in Mark 8.38. He says, whoever is ashamed of me And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Why does he say in this adulterous and sinful generation? He's saying this. He's really saying the same thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 1. He's saying this adulterous and sinful generation needs to hear these words. And they're going to respond in the same way that Paul is talking about. Shaming you, persecuting you, and more. It will be offensive. Stumbling block. And so Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words to speak in this generation and in our generation, so will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So it's not just about me encouraging you to share the whole story. It's not just about me saying share both the good news and the bad news. It is about me saying that Jesus said, "Do not be ashamed of my words, because it has a consequence of me being ashamed to proclaim of you." When I come into the glory of my Father. So we must be faithful. If we do not then we will not cause the slightest concern for people who live daily walking down a path leading to destruction who are in an adulterous and sinful generation. Is there any question that we live in an adulterous and sinful generation? No. We live in an adulterous and sinful generation. And people are walking on a broad path that does not look like the narrow, agonizing path that leads to life. But you know what? They feel good about it because they're not fully aware. They're never once confronted with the reality of their own condition, or if they have, they've been suppressing it with the truth. They need the the power of the gospel to break through to their minds and to their hearts. So if we do not expose sin, then people will be quite content to continue with all kinds of wrong images, wrong understandings of themselves. They'll respond positively that they are Christians, which is also a great irony, right, that the majority of people in America claim to believe in God, even to follow Christ. But it's a popular type of Christianity. It's the one in, in which I'm afraid many continue to be slaves of the devil. And as Jesus said, when the strong man Armed keeps his place, palace. He says his goods are at peace, and that strong man Jesus using as a metaphor for the devil keeps his slaves in perfect peace by blinding them to the destruction that awaits them, and that's what the gospel is for. So going back up to verse two, Paul highlights a number of things about the gospel. First, he says it originates with God. He calls it the gospel of God. Even though Paul could say that this was his gospel, as we saw in the next chapter, even though he says that's his gospel, that's in the sense that it's his message. It's what he is speaking. Yet he affirms that, hey, we didn't invent it. The apostles did not come up with this gospel. It was revealed and entrusted to us by the Lord. And that's crucial to our sharing of the good news because we've already seen the the content of the gospel and what's at stake. But we also need to realize that this content is not just a collection of human speculation. Not just one more religion to add to the list of choices that people have. In fact, it isn't a religion at all. It is rather the gospel of God. It is God's good news for the world. And that news is not an afterthought. And so Paul says, as we read in verse 2, it was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and that's Paul's term for the Old Testament. As soon as the fall occurred, the gospel was already ready because it was the gospel of God, and God is from eternity, always was, is, and will be. This is his good news. And Jesus himself made it clear that the Scriptures bore witness to him. That he was the Son of Man, referred to in Daniel 7, the suffering servant, referred to in Isaiah 53, the seed promised in Genesis 3. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, he says, the pages of the Old Testament, they rustle with hope. Like a breeze blowing over there, and you hear the, you know, you hear this. It's the hope of Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. Over and over we hear from the prophets that a Savior, a Messiah, is coming. He will be in Israel. He will be from the tribe of Judah. He will be one of David's descendants. He will be born in Bethlehem. He will live in Nazareth. He will sojourn in Egypt. He will suffer. He will be betrayed. He will die on a tree. He will bear the sins of a people. He will be forsaken. He will rise again. Each one of those events and a hundred more, all written about in the Old Testament, all part of the gospel good news. There is nothing to be ashamed of with something that belongs to God. And this leads to Paul's next observation that the essence of the gospel of God is Jesus Christ. Yes, there's that part of it that is the revelation of man's sin and God's wrath against sin. But the solution, the good news is all part of that message. As hard as it is to talk to people about their condition, yet the solution is already there. That's why he says in verses 3-4 through concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh was declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Unlike every major world religion other than Christianity, you can can from those remove the central figures and the principles will still hold. You can remove Buddha, you can remove Muhammad and others. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, you destroy the gospel. Because Jesus is the gospel. Christianity was never meant to be a system of rules and rituals. You're not sharing a good news that is meant to free people from condemnation and judgment only to then just continue to live on their own now that they are saved. What you are telling them about is a relationship with Jesus Christ. In this gospel, this gospel that belongs to God, that He promised from the very earliest stage in human history, the essence of it is Jesus Christ. And so in verses 5-6, through Paul says, "...through whom?" We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Grace and apostleship. Paul always saw that obligation as an undeserved privilege. This, even this elevation, if you will, to the position of being an apostle, to being an authority, a leader, saw it as a gracious, undeserved privilege that he never could quite get over that wonder. In fact, so often one of the key terms that he gives is grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. This is the grace of God, right? That's one of Paul's favorite terms. It's because God in this gospel gives you a richer joy than anything else life can provide you. You were dead and blinded by sin, unable to appreciate all that God has done and is doing and will do. You suppress the truth of all that God is In unrighteousness, as we'll talk about a little next week, you rejected him, but in his great mercy and grace, he, through the Holy Spirit, drew you to himself, gifted you with faith, and saved you from your sin. That is grace. Dying for you while you were at sinners, restoring hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind, and now we have the privilege of not only understanding that gospel, but sharing it with others. Paul says there's no greater joy. How can I possibly be ashamed? Here's what I'm implying from that. How can I possibly be ashamed of something that is so gracious, that is so joy-producing, the biggest blessing that I will ever receive in my life, I was going down this path of thinking of myself as a successful individual in all of these ways that was my earthly resume and yet God intervened. He broke that yoke and He's given me the gracious privilege of being a slave of Christ. Don't forget that. But also don't Forget what what Paul says here. That we are being told to share this message for the obedience of the nations. Here's a hard one. Because it's hard enough, I think, as we go through life and we, we, we talk about sharing the gospel. And here we've talked about the full content of the gospel, not being ashamed of it. We know it's the power of God to salvation. But then we always, because of probably because of our upbringing with evangelism, we always talk about the end as being inviting people to make a decision. That's not what Paul says. He says the gospel is about obedience to the faith. The idea of an invitation carries with it the implication that the person has a choice. Right? A choice in the first place to accept or reject it. I invite you to consider this and choose this. That's not the same thing as being commanded to believe. God does not invite people to repent and obey. He commands them. As Paul tells the Athenians... In Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In fact, I wonder sometimes where the word invitation came from. Perhaps it arose out of a form of being ashamed of the gospel and intended to soften the blow, if you will, of God's command. To modern man, if you invite people to something, what does that do? It creates a little extra space. Invitations shift the authority to the person making the decision and making the choice. But God is the authority, and he's commanding. And that's offensive. So friends, Paul addresses you as saints this morning. He invites you to share with him the same calling, at least to share the gospel, to be bold in telling the truth, to call people to repentance. Friend, you must hear these words, is what I'm saying. You say in that sharing of the gospel that you say to someone, not I invite you to consider, but friend, you must hear these words and repent. so I want to draw your attention back to verses 14 to 16. We've seen this heart of the gospel, what it does, why it's so important. Look at what Paul says. He says, I am under obligation. And note that this obligation is not to God, but to the Greeks and barbarians. If you first read that, when when you read him say, I am under obligation, if you don't read it carefully, you naturally think I'm under obligation to God. But that's not what Paul says. He says, I am under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians, but to the wise and the foolish. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I feel like I am under a burden of debt to the world. There are two ways of going into debt, right? The first is to borrow money from someone. And the second is to be given money from one person to give to another person. For example, if you gave me $1,000 to give to one of our sister churches, I would be under obligation to that church, our sister church, to give them the $1,000 that you gave me. It doesn't belong to me. And that's what Paul is talking about. The Romans didn't give him anything to repay. But Jesus Christ gave him the good news, the gospel, to give to the Romans. And that news wasn't just for Paul. You see, the moment you became a Christian, it wasn't that your life just improved. You were immediately given an obligation and a burden. And that obligation is to all the people that you encounter. It is to this world. Because this is not a gospel about God. This is the gospel of God. This is God's story, not your story. And you owe the world this news. You owe it to the stranger at the store. You owe it to your neighbor next door and to your unbelieving neighbors. And as you carry out that obligation as a slave of Christ, eager and not ashamed to change lives through the Holy Spirit's work in the gospel. Remember what he writes in verse 16. It is the power of God to salvation. So, your eloquent words will not change people. Your logical arguments will not change people. Your memorization of gospel tracts will not change people. Just like your lack of eloquence and your incomplete statements won't cause people to reject Christ. The power of God to salvation is not in your words, it is in the gospel. You may tell people you believe in God. You may talk about the events at church or your commitment to your spouse. You may even talk about biblical principles of money management or child rearing, but your words will not affect others, at least not in any life-changing, salvific way. You must proclaim the gospel because education doesn't change people. It just makes them more intelligent in their evil practices. Right? Bettering social conditions doesn't change people either. Doing something to help meet their material goods our needs is good, but it doesn't change a person's heart. The only thing that changes the heart of a man or a woman is the good news that men and women are enslaved to sin and Jesus came and died to save sinners and then rose again on the third day. That is the power of God to salvation. Tell that eloquently or ineloquently, persuasively, non-persuasively, it doesn't matter, for the power of salvation is not you, it is the gospel, it is God. Utilized by the Holy Spirit draw people to himself. And that is what the people need to hear. And my challenge to you this morning is to think carefully about Paul's words in these first 16 verses. Do you realize what you hold? You hold the power of life. And you owe it to this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good word and and for all that You have done for us. What an amazing God that You are, that You intervened and broke into our lives, that You broke that stranglehold of sin that enslaved us, that heavy yoke that was crushing us. And Lord, what You did was You gave us a lighter yoke, but You also gave us a a story, a message, a gospel. And you said, share this with the nations. Call them to obedience. It is the only thing that will work. Father, may we have hearts that long for seeing the salvation of the nations. May we not think that we were just saved to be more joyful people in our own individual space and in our own life without any consideration of of what we hold and what we are to do with it. Father, may we be eager people who are not ashamed to share the good and the bad news that leads to life. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.